From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us from New Orleans in Hour 2 to discuss time slips. Hour 1, the long overdue return to the program of one of my favorites, definitely in the pantheon of great researchers in the alternative history arena, Joseph Farrell is standing by to discuss all things geopolitical. Before that, very quickly, I want to take a moment to thank several of our Star Chamber tier donors on patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Brad Robinson, Denny Bladell, and Peter Ward. Thanks for all your support every month. Now, if you want to become an official supporter of The Conspiracy Show and my YouTube channel and my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, just visit patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Joseph Farrell is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. A renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material. Joseph Farrell, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Richard. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. What are you working on these days? Uh, I just did a new book. Uh, it's available on Lulu called Microcosm and Mediator, or pardon me, Microcosm and Medium. And I'm working on a kind of a sequel to it right now, which I'm hoping will be out. Cross your fingers uh, in sometime this autumn. Now, for those, and there there may be one or two of them out there, not familiar with your body of work, your tremendous body of work, if you had to summarize sort of the underlying or the the common thread, Mm -hmm. uh, how would you describe your work? Well, if you look at it at the whole opus or output, uh, basically it's it's the age-old conflict of good versus evil, of of conspiratorial powers uh, basically trying to lord it over the rest of us. Uh, that, That would be the best way to look at it. And it has always been thus, right? Since the planet mm-hmm. cooled. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but the players, the the I guess the names change. Uh, yeah. the, the players change. I mean, there's some very very old families, I guess, still, yeah. you know, uh, on the stage. But is it is it more important to understand the names or or the process? I think it's more important to understand the process and to understand, uh, by process, I would say the playbook. Uh, because if you look at the playbook, Richard, uh, you know, just, just going back even as far as the Renaissance and, and to the Italian city states, the banking city states like Genoa and Venice, the playbook hasn't really changed that much. Uh, they're still up to the same old shenanigans. And to give you a case in point here, uh, there was a fellow by the name, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, by the name of Paolo Sarpi in Venice. And he was the first Malthusian. He was the Malthus before, you know, before Thomas Malthus that, 
that first came out with the idea of a maximum carrying capacity, population capacity for planet Earth, which he he said at one billion. <laughs> and of and of course, you know, he was working for the international bankers banksters of the day, being based there in Venice on the Rialto. So you know, it hasn't changed that much. Uh, the the new Malthusians. I mean, they seem to be. Uh, garbed or wrap themselves in the environmental banner or mm-hmm. the the progressive banner mm-hmm. and there it's what's changed it now is that they seem to have or at least have staked out a claim of moral authority yeah yeah they've they've staked this out and and they've staked it out in such a way and I think this is an important point to understand, you know, if we're going to talk about politics and geopolitics. They stake this out in such a way to make it appear as if cultural issues are political issues. Let's take the case of Emmanuel Macron in France. You know, this guy is a Rothschild shill. He's a, he's a technocrat. He's a banker. He's living high on the hog in the Elysee Palace. And he comes out and, and tells the world at, at the monument of, of Verdun, the great World War I battle, that, you know, the kind of nationalism that we see now is, is not genuinely patriotic. And these people were fighting for this global new world order, which of course, you know, ask an average Frenchman at Verdun in 1916 if that's what he's fighting for. Right. right. And, and, you know, the answer would be a very firm no. And Macron follows this up with statements to the effect that, well, there's no such thing as French culture. And, you know, Catherine Fitz pointed this out in her annual wrap-up just a few days ago, that, you know, France's largest portion of its gross domestic product is exporting French culture. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Excellent point. So it's just nuttiness. These, These people are just nuts. But, but. It's important that to remember that their agenda is to really destroy any vestige of Western culture and replace it with with a technocratic new world order. And this is the reason that we're seeing all the pushback in France, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, the United States, you know, pretty much anywhere you go in the Western world. Well, this yellow vest uh, movement, mm-hmm. uh, can we call it a movement yet? I mean, it has – there were – hints that it was spreading not only within France. It first it started in Paris and then more rural areas because mm-hmm. obviously the agricultural sector was perhaps hardest hit uh, mm-hmm. by this fuel tax. But then there were inklings that it was spreading into to, to Belgium and places mm-hmm. like that. There was even a yellow vest protest out in Alberta, our mm-hmm. western uh, province, uh, because... Our prime minister has sort of reenacted the national energy program that, that got his father in great uh, uh, difficulty and has, has, has stirred up Western separatism again. But is mm-hmm. the Yellow Vest movement here to stay, do you think? Is it perhaps even a tipping point? Oh, I think it's definitely here to stay in one form or another. I mean, it may, it may morph into something different, but the fact of the matter is, let's, let's, let's turn to Germany for a moment. I read a, a, an article recently where the Alternative for Deutschland party, 
which is the you know the up and coming so called populist party in Germany. Well, it's just Germans basically fed up with you know being overrun by by so called refugees and a double standard of law being applied to them. In the east, the former eastern zone of of Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland party is now the leading party. Wow! Not just regionally, yeah. but we're talking across the country. No, just in the former eastern zone. Oh, in the, the former, former eastern, eastern zone, right? Right. But it's now the leading party, you know, and it's it's done fairly well in other regional elections in Germany. Uh, a few years back, another another telltale sign that something big was brewing was the Dutch leader Hert Wilders gave a speech uh, to a more or less packed out audience of, of very nicely dressed middle class Austrians in the Hofburg. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> you know, which, which takes a little doing, you know, to be invited to give a speech there. So this is not a movement that's going to go away. I think, I think the global loneliness, as I like to call them, have overplayed their hand and they're trying to force everybody into this, uh, this cultural homogeny, this cultural stew and people don't want it because they recognize that there's more at stake than than just their national sovereignty it's it's their it's their cultural identity and you can't have a functioning economic system really without an undergirding culture that goes with it and that's you know that's the hard lesson in all of this i guess the question though is is it too late for europe because uh you know for for decades their only concern it seems to me and and what has defined their culture Mm-hmm. In, in the absence of, uh, say, you know, Christianity, which has mm-hmm. been on the rapid decline, has been concern about shorter working hours, greater maternity mm-hmm. leave, more holiday time. Mm-hmm. This, to me, has defined Europe. Uh, is it too late now to re- reawaken and, and dis- rediscover their culture? No, I don't think it is. In fact, I see the opposite happening. Um, this this movement has, as you know, spread to Italy. You've got a new government in Italy. You've had the Hungarians and the Polish uh, just simply refusing to go along with the diktats coming out of uh, Brussels, a.k.a. Berlin. And I, I think this is going to spread. It's not going to go away. You know, we're, we're facing the same thing in this country. You're facing it in Canada. Uh, they're facing it in Australia. There have even been these, these yellow jacket protests in Taiwan, of all places. Wow. Yeah, so it's going to spread, you know. And the other odd thing about this, you mentioned the, the cultural pillar of Christianity, which in my opinion is one of the three cult pillars of Western culture, the others being uh, the humanistic uh, pillar, and the third one being the idea of covenant or, or contract or rule of law, which of course comes out of out of Judaism. But uh, you're seeing something else happening, and I, I was just stunned when I read this, Richard. In China, they are fast approaching the stage that Christianity could become the majority religion in that country by the year 2030. There's already a quarter of a million people that identify themselves as, as Christian in China. I'm, I've been reading about these underground churches in places mm-hmm. like China and also Iran, uh, mm-hmm. but I had no idea uh, that it was growing. I, I mean, I'm, I'm buoyed by that. I'm, uh, I'm absolutely, uh, you know, over the moon about about that. Uh, yeah, China has a, a lot of 
problems. I don't think Christianity is a problem, but I mean, in, ter- in terms of the regime, certainly mm-hmm. it is. But they have a whole host of demographic type uh, issues. Uh, maybe we can circle back to China later, but I just wanted mm-hmm. to stick with the populist uh, rising personified by the Yellow Vest movement. Um, I mean, how... What what does this portend for the future of the EU? Are we going to see like a a slow unwinding, or is it going to be more dramatic, almost like the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the, the almost seemingly overnight collapse of the Eastern Bloc? Oh, what a what a great question! You know, a few years ago, I would have taken the position that you're going to see more or less a slow unwinding, and the reason I took that position is that basically the EU is nothing but the expansion of the old exchange rate mechanism, the, the uh, currency pegging system that existed in Europe prior to the current EU thing, where where the currencies of smaller nations were pegged to the Deutschmark. And then France came in and they reworked that whole thing and created the Eurozone. Uh, I, I now think that with Macron looking so very, very weak, uh, Marine Le Pen is now leading him in all the polling in, in France. Angela Merkel, of course, we know is in huge trouble inside of Germany. So I, at this stage, I would not be surprised that you're going to see a, a sudden unraveling uh, of the current EU structure, and there's already pressures, of course, to to uh, homogenize European militaries into a, a military structure. But the interesting thing here to note, Richard, is that Germany has already gone ahead and done this on its own by integrating various military units of of the of the Netherlands and the Czech Republic and so on into the German command structure. So. Regardless of what happens with the EU, I think you're going to see further nationalism. You're going to see uh, increases in defense spending. You're going to see a weakened American presence in Europe, especially, you know, with the current uh, trade wars going on between the United States and Germany. So this is this, I think, bodes ill for for the future of the European Union. Um but what to do with Macron? Because, uh, I mean, they could replace him with, I don't know, uh, the vice president, but they're not slated for more presidential elections for what, another five, six years? Yeah, they, that's correct. However, as I've been led to understand, he's had a couple of votes of no confidence. Now, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the French Constitution to know whether it's a full parliamentary system or if it's some amalgamation between that sort of system and the American system. But uh, regardless of what happens to Macron, if he manages to stay for the full term of his office, I think it's going to be a, a more or less of a lame duck presidency, and you're going to see this this revolt spread. Um, the same thing in, in, in Germany. Merkel has stepped down from the party leadership. She suffered a humiliating defeat in the Bundestag when she was unable to get her pick for, for the leader of the coalition in the Bundestag put through. So I think her days are absolutely numbered. And, you know, where Germany goes, like it or not, there goes the rest of Europe. And it looks to me like, like the days of her government are numbered. And that's gonna, that is another bad sign for the EU because at this point I don't think the alternative for Deutschland's party can be stopped. Uh, I'm not overly, I'm not too familiar with the Deutschland party uh, platform. Um, how would how would we describe their brand of populism? Well, 
every effort is being made in the media to portray them as radical ultra right wing uh, people. And this, you know, I've listened to a number of their their speeches in the Bundestag, and it's sim- they simply strike me as 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 German nationalists wanting to retain some semblance of German culture and, and German sovereignty, and you can't blame them. Uh, they don't strike me as being radical in the way that the media has has tried to portray them. They they tried the same number on Herit Wilders, and of course that didn't work. And they tried the same number on Marine Le Pen, and it worked to a certain extent to help get Macron elected. But I, I think you know, with his recent statements, uh, his absolutely nutty statements, that. That, that the mask is off and Mr. Globalone is naked and exposed for all for all to see and hear. And I don't think he's going to last in France either. What will be the next or which will be the next domino uh, to fall? Will it be Italy with uh, I mean, that's more of a leftist populist uh, country, right. but still very nationalist. I mean, and, right. and they just right now, the, the people of Italy absolutely adore uh, this government, their president. Yeah, well, they for good reason because he's absolutely standing up to to Brussels and and the diktats coming out of Brussels. Uh, the the biggest domino that needs to fall, let's put it that way, is a realization by the European peoples that their their socialist governments and how they have played in with with the globalist agenda simply are not working so there's they have to understand there's going to be no more free lunch that's problem number 1 problem number 2 is with the rise of robotics and everything it's going to become increasingly difficult for countries to maintain the type of employment that they've maintained before without moving in a direction of what I call human productivity. In other words, uh, production of things that are not necessarily things like automobiles or flipping hamburgers or things like that, but production in terms of the arts. And there, the Europeans are very uniquely poised to be able to make the transition to this new type of, of economy that we're moving into because they can they can just as France has done in the past, they can market those cultural uh, monuments and traditions in a way that we have great difficulty doing here in this country and, and to a certain extent up there in Canada. So I think if the Europeans latch on to this idea of human productivity and uh, that sort of thing, that, that they're in a better position ultimately to exploit this transition. Uh, are you concerned, should we be concerned about, um, well, to me, when I look at someone like Trump or, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or uh, Le Pen, I sort mm-hmm. of see them as the, the personification of Newton's third law. They are the opposite and equal reaction. Right. Um, but sometimes when the pendulum swings back the other way, it does so in a very violent and nasty manner. And I think we, right. uh, my concern is, although I am, you know, I would consider myself right wing and I'm, I'm a populist, uh, we, we've seen this movie before. We know how it can yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah. We have seen this before. And this is what I find very alarming about all this. It, it could be that things would move in that direction. You know, President Trump is just this evening supposed to give a an address to the country about the border wall. Um, and 
there has been talk of him invoking presidential emergency powers to do so, which, you know, he certainly has the authority to do. Uh, it could very easily move in that direction as, as the political left becomes more radicalized, more violent and vociferous in their demands and, and their unwillingness to compromise on anything. It could very easily move in that direction. And that frightens me as much as it frightens you. Uh, who concerns you most in, in Europe, uh, with regards to, to, uh, to that potential outcome? Well, it's, it concerns me the most, not so much in the Western European countries, but in the Eastern European countries, because there you have the greatest amount of pushback against Brussels. And what worries me is that in their turn toward America to, uh, rely on American protection, they're really putting themselves and they're putting the United States in a very difficult geopolitical position. Um, you know, I go, I, I made this prediction 10 years ago, Richard, that as American power begins to crumble, you would see America gradually shift its basing in Europe from Western Europe into Eastern Europe to prevent that dreaded Russo-German rapprochement, you know, a, a Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact version 2.0, and this is exactly what we've seen happening. So, you know, we're being we're being pulled into a a situation much like the post World War One Western Allies were pulled into, in having to guarantee the safety and security of the Eastern European countries against you know the two great European powers, and you know that eventually triggered World War Two. So, uh, it's a very very dangerous geopolitical situation that's going on, especially when you consider the the West's role in in toppling the previous government in the Ukraine. So there's that to contend with. And if anything does light a spark in Europe, it would probably come out of Eastern Europe because of this, because they are just adamantly bucking uh, Brussels. There's, there's no doubt about it. All right, we'll pick up on a few of these points and explore others. Joseph P. Farrell, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Joseph, I don't think there's any doubt that we are now in the midst of a new Cold War. I think, uh-huh. though, the adversaries, the true adversaries here are the U.S. and China. I mean, Russia with uh-huh. a, a GDP equivalent to maybe Texas, I don't think really is the true adversary, ultimately. What are your thoughts? Well, yes and no. Uh, I do agree that Russia is not the significant economic power that it was under the Soviet Union, especially when when the old Soviet republics devolved away from Moscow's control. Russia still maintains a first-rank conventional and, and thermonuclear capability, and this is always going to make Russia a major contender on the field. And the other problem with Russia while we're talking about that nation, is that President Putin has repeatedly made it very clear in his speeches that he and his administration, and for that matter the Russian nation, are simply not 
playing with the playbook of Mr. Globalone. They do not acknowledge that the leadership of the world should devolve to multinational corporations and so on and so forth. They're just not willing to play that game, and they've been bucking the trend. So they're going to be a major player, whether we like it or not. China, I agree with you there, China has overtaken the United States in terms of economic prosperity and so on and so forth. It does have a number of very interesting systemic problems. But if you watch what has been happening with the big three in Asia, Russia, China, and Japan, the most interesting game here is this game that Russia is playing with Japan, in my opinion, because Shinzo Abe and Mr. Putin have sidestepped the issue of trying to settle a peace accord and put a formal end to their hostilities, you know, dating back to World War II. Over the, uh, the Kuril Islands, isn't it? Over the Kuril Islands, precisely. What they've done is they've decided more or less to go ahead with the idea of making those islands kind of free trade zones. And this is interesting to me because it appears to me that Mr. Putin, in order to offset the Chinese influence in funding the development of Siberian infrastructure and so on, is very cagely turning towards Japan to offset the Chinese influence. So he's playing Japan and China against each other and doing so quite successfully. Now, for Mr. Abe's part, he also has been playing a very, very cagey diplomatic game the past few years. He has stepped up Japanese rearmament, and this is in response ostensibly to American calls for for its allies to take a greater <coughs> pardon me a greater role in their defense. But I think in terms of Japanese strategic thinking, what they're looking at is that America is no longer number one a reliable ally. Number two, America's overextended. And for Japan, therefore, to maintain its position and its security, it's going to have to rearm regardless of what Washington wants or not, because they're thinking of the long-term challenge from China. So this is the reason I think you see Abe going ahead with, with rearmament at the same time that he's extending all of this financial investment to Russia. And from the Japanese point of view, again, Richard, this makes very good strategic sense because Russia has the energy resources that Japan needs and the supply lines are much closer to Japan in a certain sense. They don't have to haul oil from the Middle East and hence those supply lines are less subject to interdiction. So it makes a a great deal of sense for this Russo-Japanese rapprochement to be occurring. Well, isn't that good news for the West, that Russia would align itself more in Japan's sphere than China's? I think it is, ultimately. You know, ultimately it means that the Russians are going to be faced with the strategic choice, which, you know, they're, they're not going to be faced with for the next 10 years, but ultimately they're going to have to make a choice on where they throw the majority of their weight. And my suspicion is that Russia, just by dint of its more Western cultural makeup, is is going to go with Japan rather than China. But that could change. You know, again, as I said, China is experiencing this massive expansion of Christianity, mostly of an evangelical form, and that could play into China's long-term 
future. And I should add here, Richard, a very interesting thing. I saw a study a few years ago and even blogged about this, that the Chinese interior ministry had done a study of various religions to figure out which one would be the best long-term bet for China. And to me, that was a huge telling study that they would do because it's an indicator, number one, that they know that communism is ultimately going to lose its appeal. And they have to have some cultural mechanism to cohere the nation and yet a mechanism that's going to leave its elite more or less in charge. So this could be something that is part of a long-term Chinese strategy, you know, we'll see. It would fit the kind of Confucian mentality of the Mandarins that run the Chinese state to do that kind of thinking. You know, they think in very long-term strategic ways, culturally, in ways that Western nations tend not to do. So we could be looking at a long-term game here developing between Russia, Japan, and China, and that's exactly what I think is going to be the next 10 to 20 years. Fascinating. Let's talk about a, a flashpoint, potential flashpoint between, mm-hmm. well, there are several, between China and the United States. Uh, one is the those islands in the South China Sea that mm-hmm. uh, that, that China has, uh, well, really created uh, and militarized. And uh, a Chinese admiral recently said that the best way to deal with the United States in this regard is to sink a couple of their aircraft carriers because mm-hmm. they simply don't have the spine uh, for 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 a battle. What do you make of those comments, and, and where is this heading, this uh, this battle in the South Sea? Well, in a certain sense, I think it is bluster, but at the same time, I think it's it's some very some very cagey analysis because the USA is in a very very weak position right now. It's overextended. Uh, its balance of trade, as you know, is is just abysmal. Uh, there's tremendous pressure on the dollar. Um, China is is going full tilt in space, which is going to be the new uh, the new strategic theater of confrontation. So I do think that there's some merit to this. The other problem here, Richard, is we've got to remember that the the American military is getting much less return for the dollar than is China for the yuan or Russia for the ruble. Uh, they're spending you know much less on. A, a defense infrastructure that's able to deliver good product, you know, while the United States is pouring trillions into airplanes that, that don't perform according to specification and so on. Uh, the Gerald Ford, the recent American aircraft carrier, has been suffering all sorts of technical problems and difficulties which have kept it on and off station for the last couple of years. So there's a lot of technical problems here. The Chinese and Russians also have unveiled a whole arsenal of hypersonic cruise missiles and so on, which, you know, makes makes American aircraft carriers sitting ducks. So there's a lot of technical challenge. I don't therefore think that any sort of direct confrontation is going to be in the works. Um, at least from the American side, because they've, they've simply got to modernize the military and get a handle on, on defense spending and make sure that they're getting a proper return for the investment dollar, which we're not getting. In other words, the, the corruption in the American system particularly with the defense contractors, is now coming home to roost. And it's going to take quite a long time to fix. And there's another problem, Richard, that we have to mention in this respect. China is a nation of a billion people, and it's invested heavily in education. They're producing 
engineers and scientists that are tremendously capable and simply by dint of sheer numbers they can overwhelm the United States you know we're one third the population they are and we're dealing with an educational system by and large in this country that's in complete dilapidation so education in this country in my opinion is now a national security issue so that's the other problem that the United States faces long term fascinating I've never heard anyone put it in those terms education and national security issue uh we're heading into a break in about a minute here but just quickly uh, mm-hmm. what about the demographic issues that that china is is facing the, the decades-long policy a uh, one-child policy right. uh, that, that favored uh, the birth of, of young males you now have several generations of men who cannot find wives with right. that we know more crime uh etc right. etc et speak to me just very briefly about that well, this is one of those inbuilt systemic problems in China that I, I alluded to earlier. They're going to have to reconsider that, that whole policy. Uh, and it's interesting to note that China has been going back and forth on the whole GMO issue because, of course, they've got a billion mouths to feed. And they're going to have to figure out a way, number one, to feed their population. I think this is why you see the sudden and dramatic and very effective Chinese expansion into Africa. They're looking at Africa as their grain basket. Fascinating. All right. More of my conversation with Joseph P. Farrell right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Sticking with Asia, it's been quiet for a while, but I understand more talks are scheduled between the United States and and North Korea. Mm -hmm. How would you evaluate the Trump administration's handling of, of nuclear North Korea? Well, so far, I think it's been very successful, contrary to all expectations. Now, the rub is going to come on verification of the denuclearization. And then secondly, how the the two Koreas are going to handle the issue of any potential reunification and get everybody else on board with it that is, you know, has an interest in the region, China, Russia, Japan, the United States. Now, I suspect that... Russia and Japan are going to give their blessing to it simply because they don't want to to have to contend with with a nuclear North Korea and and a, a more or less out of control regime. China could be a bit more difficult, and that I suspect will depend on whether or not China links Korean issues to other Asian security issues like the South China Sea that you've mentioned, uh, access to other Asian markets, Indonesia, Australia, and so on and so forth. So it could be a case where China is going to go uh, the difficult road and play a difficult diplomatic game as far as Korea is concerned. 
what's the best possible outcome in your mind? Best possible outcome in my mind would be for some sort of reunification. Uh, I, I even have toyed with the idea, Richard, that the South Koreans may play the same sort of card that Chancellor Cole did when, when the Germanys were reunified after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, when he made the tender of one West German Deutschmark for one East German Deutschmark at par value. In other words, he took a financial hit for the short term to quickly integrate the economy of East Germany back into the total national economy. You might see something similar be offered by South Korea and you know they're certainly rich enough to do it so that might be in the cards but the, you know I, I say that Richard without having a shred of evidence to back it up it's it's a suspicion it's a it's an intuition more than anything else at this stage I want to float a little theory I have out there and let, let me get your take on this and again mm-hmm. not really backed by you know data but my perception is that going forward with the emergence of China, as you say, mm-hmm. the United States is overextended. In order to keep them in check, in order to keep perhaps a future nuclear Iran in check, what we're going mm-hmm. to see is a reproliferation of nuclear missiles by American allies. What do you think about a nuclear Japan, a nuclear South Africa, a nuclear Taiwan, and a nuclear Saudi Arabia? Well, I absolutely think that nuclear proliferation is going to occur I have had the strongest suspicion for many years that Japan has had a covert nuclear weapons program. Uh, by the same token, I, I think that Germany is, is a closet nuclear power. They're just not telling anybody. So I think that this is in the cards. The, the more so, you'll recall the, the Obama administration made the announcement that America simply has to pivot to the Pacific. And if you look at the Trump administration policy, it's more or less trying to continue that, that pivot. So I, I suspect strongly that this is going to happen. And again, if you put yourself in Japan's shoes for a moment, Japan, if you cannot rely on the United States for your military umbrella, you're going to rearm on your own anyway. And you're going to do so simply to offset the tremendous nuclear power of Russia and China. And we need to remember that in countries like Japan or Germany's case, we're dealing quite literally with turnkey nuclear powers. They can turn the key and have an arsenal of nuclear weapons built up in four weeks if they want to. So it's it's really a case I think you're you're absolutely correct that this this could continue. Now Saudi Arabia is another problem. I don't see any of the European powers or Iran or Israel going for a nuclear uh, a nuclear Saudi Arabia, e- even if the United States were to back it. Um, I think that there would be every likelihood of an Israeli strike to take out any sort of potential like that. And if not Israeli, then certainly Iranian. I just don't see that working in the cards. I was thinking that perhaps an, a nuclear Iran would make for strange bedfellows in the Middle East, and we've already seen yep. some overtures between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Perhaps yep. a nuclear Saudi Arabia would come after tremendous reform and perhaps a new alliance. 
it could be that or it could be even, you know, if we really want to walk out to the end of the twig of speculation here, we could even see some sort of agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to use the Israeli nuclear umbrella, which everybody knows that they have. I don't know, but I just don't see Saudi Arabia becoming on its own a, a nuclear power. Uh, I think there would be too much opposition to that. All right, sit tight, Joseph. We'll come back in a moment and finish up strong right here on The Conspiracy Show. smoke there's the conspiracy show with richard sarah and we're back with joseph farrell uh joseph you were you've been doing a lot you've been very active on youtube uh what's uh what's happening there well, nothing much. You know, I do my I do my Thursday evening news and views from the Nefarium. Um, that's that's primarily, I think, what you're probably yes. referring to. It's it's my it's just my weekly website podcast of picking a, a certain story and, and giving some commentary about it. Um, I've been doing that for I think about ten years. Every Thursday is it? Every uh, Thursday, yeah. All right, and and uh, what time does that uh, launch? Whenever, whenever I get it done, <laughs> there's, there's no set time. It's, it's not a, it's not a participatory thing. Now, on my website, I do have, uh, every other Friday, I do have what I call a members vid chat where I interact extensively with, with the members on my website and with the questions they send or comments and so on. But, uh, that's, that's not a generally broadcast thing. All right. Well, the best thing then to do would be to subscribe to the YouTube channel so people can get the notification when it's uh, when it's up and ready. Right. All right. Let's go. Let's come uh, closer to the home uh, to, mm-hmm. to home, uh, the United States, and uh, the Mueller investigation. They just announced. Uh, I think they were going to extend it a, 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 another six months. That doesn't mean it's going <laughs> to last another six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, this is the way with special counsels. They just, you know, they have no parameters. They have no oversight, and they just seem to meander and go wherever they want and catch as many as they can in a uh, uh, in their uh, perjury traps and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been. Recently, uh, speculated, I mean, many people have suspected this, I think, but it's what, what the Mueller probe is all about is to hide the fact that it was the Democrats involved with the Russians. So in right. a, this, again, a projection, right? The Democrats right. always accuse people of what they're the ones doing. What do you think of that theory, that the Mueller investigation is to keep a lid on the true Russian collusion, which was by the Democrats? Well, I think I think that that has a lot of of merit to it, but I would extend the I would extend the hypothesis a bit to say, in addition to this, it is a, you know like all federal investigations in this country, you know, think of the Warren report or the Ken Starr investigation. Whenever you have this type of special investigation, it's really a cover up, okay? And I think part of the cover up here is that there was every expectation in this country that that 
Darth Hillary, as I like to call her, was, <laughs> was going to win the election. You know, Newsweek magazine or Time, I forget who it was, even had magazines printed up, you know, to run out after the election was over with a picture of Hillary under the caption, Madam President. And of course, it didn't work out that way. But I think the, the, the aspect here that we have to look at is that, that with the Clinton Foundation pay to play scheme, a lot of money was given to them in anticipation that they were going to get favors from a Clinton administration. And, of course, that didn't happen. So I view this as kind of a mafia. You know, we want our money back, pay up. And they have to scramble to come up with some explanation as to why they can't pay up. You know, why did Hillary lose a rigged election, <laughs> in other words? So I think that's a part of it. You know, they're trying to provide cover for for the Clintons as, as well uh, as to the fact that there's a massive problem with Uranium One and some of, uh, some of these other things. Well, if this was a movie, uh, it would be like... Um uh, was it a Berlin Alexander Platz, which I think uh, that Fassbinder <laughs> film, which is what, like 11, 12 hours long. Yep, yep. H- how does this, how does this movie end? I think at this juncture, Richard, the, the hysteria in this country, which to me is, is alarming. I, I've never seen anything like this. But at this juncture, um, that, you know, they're even trying to snag Alan Dershowitz, the, the famous Harvard law professor and, and a liberal Democrat in, in all of this nonsense. And, you know, he's not having any of it. And I think it's got to come down now, Richard, that they're going to have to perp walk some of these people. If not, if something like this doesn't happen, if something dramatic doesn't happen, uh, you can you can number the Trump administration's days. Uh, I think you're going to see a significant part of the American electorate just kind of uh, pack up bags and crawl back into the woodwork, and that could be very very dangerous as well because we now have a very radicalized uh, Democratic Party in this country and a Republican Party that's used to doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so. It it could get to be a very dangerous situation unless there are some arrests made, and they they have to be prominent. They have to be prominent in order to assuage the mood of of the people that put Mr. Trump into office. Are you talking about high-ranking Trump uh, administration officials? No, are we talking about Democrats? I'm talking about Democrats, and you know some of the some of the global lonely Republicans that have played ball uh, along the way. I think I think the mood in this country is such that it's not going to be assuaged unless something is seen to be being done. And what would be the mechanism uh, for Mueller investigating? The other side. I mean, is that going to happen once the new attorney general is appointed? And do you see that changing anything? This is going to sound utterly bizarre, but what I view the appointment of William Barr as, and I just did a blog on my website about William Barr and the connections to the Promise Inslaw software thing and all of that. I think that his appointment may signal a divorce between the Bush faction and the Clinton faction, which were in bed together, of course, from from the early days of the Reagan administration. 
I think that this signals a divorce. And the reason why I say that is that President Trump made a speech in Montana. Uh, it was a few months ago where he said, just announced very dramatically, we have finally put an end to the Bush dynasty. It was a very curious remark. And of course, you know, the crowd went, you know, went all agog and, and laughed and applauded and so on and so forth. I think what you're seeing is, is a divorce. In other words, a, a deal may have been struck with the Bush faction to get rid of the Clinton faction. And something is, something dramatic, I think, is, is possibly going to happen as a result of it. But again, if nothing does happen, if, if there are no significant arrests and, and perp walks, so to speak, I think you're going to see, uh, the Trump coalition dissolve. Interesting. Does Trump get his wall? Uh, I think he will. Uh, he's, he's made it very clear that he is willing to invoke presidential emergency powers. And incidentally, in a recent interview he gave to reporters before flying off to Camp David, he talked about human trafficking uh, flowing both directions from the United States to Mexico, Mexico to the United States. And this is the first time that I have heard him tie the wall issue to the issue of human trafficking. So I think he's he's going to stick to his guns there. Right. As long as he stops talking about a wall and starts talking about a steel barrier, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting how he is sort of massaging the language. Mm-hmm. Right. How much of this has to do with looking ahead into the future and mass, massive migration. I mean, you know, these small little clusters of eight, ten thousand people coming up from Honduras and Guatemala, that's going to be dwarfed in a few years. Once, you know, this United Nations pact on mass migration, uh, which Canada has signed on, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to re-education camps for journalists. You know, you can't use the term illegal immigrant anymore and so forth. How mm-hmm. much of this building this wall is in anticipation of that? Uh, just very quickly before we close out. I think it's related to a very different issue. The United States is attempting to reshore industry and bring in a lot of technical and scientific expertise as fast as it can. And a lot of this is, is and is going to come from Asia. And if you are wanting to come to the United States, you want to make very sure that your your borders are secure and that these people that you're bringing into this country are secure. I think this is kind of the hidden issue behind all of this. This is part of a reshoring agenda, I think, that really began to occur at least to certain factions of Mr. Globaloney about 10 years ago, that, that Globaloneyism and this free trade stuff was not working and they'd have to shore up their base of power, which is in, in North America, the United States and Canada. So I think that's the hidden agenda here. Joseph, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me back. Joseph P. Farrell.